I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, and another interview in the series of conversations with translators. My guest this week is Meredith McKinney, a translator from Japanese, whose anthology of classic Japanese travel writing was published by Penguin Classics at the end of last year. We think of travel writing really as writing about adventure. The traveller going off and witnessing new things, um, discovering things about themselves and other people and other places and Newness is probably the essence of what we think of in travel writing, whereas this travel writing is hugely about its own tradition, really, and to go back and touch the things that earlier travelers had touched was really, as it were, the touchstone of so much of this writing. Meredith lived and taught in Japan for around 20 years and then returned to Australia in 1998 and now lives near the small town of Braidwood, in southeastern New South Wales. She's currently an honorary associate professor at the Japan Centre, Australian National University. I was alerted to her book by an excellent review of it in The Guardian. The anthology which she selected and translated ends in the late 17th century with the poet Basho, who wrote The Narrow Road to the Deep North. And before reaching him, it surveys around a thousand years of Japanese writing. When you're reading an anthology of an unfamiliar literature, is there a moment when you decide it's for you? This was the moment I clicked with this anthology, and I knew I wanted to read on. It's a lament for a prince who died in the late 7th century, when the dead were believed to still inhabit geographical space. In a Suka River of the flying birds, the jewelled waterweed of those upper reaches twines down to stroke the lower. Yet he whom you love twines no longer this way and that about you, sinuous as waterweed. That tender flesh no longer lies like a sword beside you, and through these black nights your bed lies chill and desolate, so that comfortless perhaps you go in hope of meeting him, dragging your jewelled train through mud and morning dew. On the great plains of Ochi, Drenching your robes in the evening mist, sleeping upon your journey, grass for pillow, in search of him you will not meet again. I spoke to Meredith on the phone in mid-February, when bushfires and floods 
were the top items on the news. I began by asking her if she lived in a part of Australia affected by those devastating fires. Yes, I am. I am indeed. Yes, I've got um, a burned forest out the back of my door. Goodness. Mm. That, must have been, that must have been very alarming, very distressing. Well, yes, it certainly was. It's been quite a summer, I can tell you. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's now, oh, well, it's wonderfully wet and calm and peaceful and cool, but, you know, it's been hell, really. Was there a time when you had to leave your home or have you been able to stay in it all? Yeah, no, I um, I left actually when our local fire began at the end of November and because I lived deep in a forest on my own, I didn't right. to be here when there was fire around and it was just behaving appallingly, unpredictably. So I was out for six weeks until the fire came to my place, in fact. And right. once it had Goodness. come, then, you know, I could come back. But yes, it was uh, <laughs> it was pretty wild. Yeah. So your so your um, environment's completely changed in the last. Yes, the back part. They stopped the fire at the house, so the front from from the house onwards is um, is intact. But all of the back is just. I mean, it's yeah, charcoal and cinders. So there we are. You can imagine me sitting in there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I am. I am. Yes, and I, I feel very, very sorry. We, we at the moment in England are having floods. Um, yeah, I, I quite, heard quite disastrous floods in parts of the country. That seems to be the the the, the, the way that um, climate change is is affecting us most. Dear, oh dear. Well, we've had flooding too. So <laughs> we had flooding after oh dear, the fire. You've had you've had the law, oh dear. <laughs> Take me back, Meredith, to um, when you made the decision to learn Japanese. Am I right in reading that it was after high school? Uh, Yes, um, it was, because high school didn't offer any opportunities to learn Japanese in those days, in Australia anyway. The decision was one of those blind decisions that you make at that stage of your life, which end up being crucial to what comes afterwards (laughs) forevermore. Um, And it had to do with the fact that it was English literature that I was really interested in studying. Right. And um, that was not going to provide any kind of skill or competency that I could take into wider life. And my mother, in fact, suggested that what I could do was learn another language and become a translator, which sounded right. a pretty good idea to me. So, And I'd just been reading a book of, of haiku as it happened. Um, R.H. Blythe, who was one of the early translators of haiku, a very sort of a romantic translator, really. But um, anyway, the haiku was an, an extraordinary revelation to me. I was about, well, 17, I suppose. So I thought, well, all right, I'll just try this language and see if I can translate these little things. They shouldn't be too hard. Right. <laughs> Which, of course, is the absolute opposite of the fact. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Well, you, I read you, you wrote something very, um, well, poetic in itself. You said, um, they slip like water through your fingers. All that's left is the dead silt. Um, that, was, that was your description of attempting to, to translate haiku. I mean, wh- what is it about them that makes them so difficult to capture? Hmm. Um, I suppose it's because they're so small that, the punch that they carry actually lies somewhere beyond the words themselves. It's it's really the spaces around the words, I suppose you could say, almost like the spaces around the stroke in calligraphy are as powerful yes. as the stroke itself. And of course, that that requires an understanding or a feel of the resonances set up 
by the words, the way they work with each other, which are so culture-specific, language-specific, that, you know, just lumping them into our approximations of meaning really, I mean, you feel as though you're pinning butterflies to, you know, to watch the colours fade, really. It's just, it's yes. you feel like a failure every time, unfortunately. Looking back from this vantage point, your, your sort of trajectory seems to have had remarkable consistency when you compare it to, you know, to that starting impulse when you were 17. I mean, your latest anthology is still tackling those elusive, concentrated little poems. Well, yeah. well actually, rather than still, it is kind of finally. <laughs> <laughs> because okay. I've spent my entire trajectory avoiding <laughs> translating haiku. Okay. <laughs> and at last I I forced myself up to the door and had to open it. And really at the end of this anthology I finally got to the place where I had well in my mind had begun back when I was 17 and had to face the fact that it really is impossible but I could perhaps do something more now than I have been able to before I suppose. Well, before we get to the point of you tackling poetry from the, you know, from deep in the history of Japanese literature, tell me about your actual first encounter with learning Japanese. You know, you had this, you had this desire to, to spend your your working life with with literature, and you thought being a translator was a good uh, way to do that. But what was it actually like when you were confronted with the the reality of learning Japanese? Well, when I was at university, it was not really any more than a kind of a a mental exercise, I suppose, because, oh gosh, this was back in the early 70s and, um, you know, you didn't really have much chance to use it as a living language. It was really very much in the mode of learning how to read it and and um, parse its grammar and so on, as you do with any language. And it was, of course, a very foreign language, but that was a kind of a mental challenge rather than anything else. But going to Japan was the real challenge, that that took it into the the realm of having to actually live it. And then the, the foreignness of it just, well, just became a very difficult thing to cope with, I suppose, for a while until I got my head around how to think in it, really, I suppose, is what it comes down to. It takes a long, long time, much, much longer than um, with Western languages, which are related to our own, because it's just so yes. utterly different. Mm. Can you say something a little a little bit about that process that 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 sort of transition period from when it is entirely alien and you're you're feeling overwhelmed by it to when you begin to actually think in it and and feel at home in it um it's a long process of years or it certainly was in my case I think some people have the kind of facility to to snap into a new language's way of thinking fairly quickly, but um, learning languages as an adult, of course, you come with your own sensibilities intact and your own sense of how language works and the way it relates to the world, and all of that has to be dismantled in some way and kind of reformed through experience, really. So you can do an awful lot of reading, um, you can do an awful lot of listening, and you can begin to understand the lineaments of the language, but to actually get the taste of how to live inside it, you just have to be, for years, deep inside that experience. 
and then slowly, I suppose, the mind just begins to accommodate itself to that way of thinking, and English becomes, in in that sense, that much further away from how you're beginning to think. It's a strange transition, but it's a very slow, imperceptible one, really, to oneself in the midst of it. And I I guess it sort of relativises your relationship with your own language, doesn't it, when you begin to have this sort of parallel system almost running, you you realise that it's not that English is right and Japanese is alien, they're, they're both in their way right and alien at the same time. Yes, well, precisely. That is how it is. And I'm sure that that's how it is with almost any language that one learns. It's yes. really kind of a dialect of one's own, essentially. But But because you've got to travel so much further to get inside Japanese, I suppose the transitions that you have to make internally are much more difficult and therefore, as you say, really much more alienating in relation to one's own language and culture. So coming back from Japan after 20 years of living there was, you know, a fearful psychic shock, really. Mm. Yeah. So what what was it that motivated you to, to persist? Presumably it wasn't in order to translate haiku. There were other motivations that must have sort of crept in along the way. Um, inertia. <laughs> I think probably inertia was as much as anything. I mean, <laughs> I, I was there, I had a job, I had friends, I I loved living where I was living. If I'd come back to Australia, I would have had to start again in all sorts of ways. The longer I was there, the the more inertia played that role. But of course, I mean, you know, that's being a bit cynical. There was a lot more to it than that. But it was a process of, I mean, it's a bit like marriage, you know, you you learn to love by living with you can come with all your ideas and your feelings already sort of, you know, projected onto things. But but the process of being there is is the process of learning to love somewhere and to love its language and its way of thinking. Do you remember what your, your first published translation from Japanese was, Meredith? Um, I think it was, yes, it was um, short stories by a contemporary writer who I found fascinating very difficult writer, but um, he was somebody who I couldn't properly read in Japanese without trying to translate him because he was just so right. elusive to my mind. And that was really how I got into translation, I suppose. And then in the process of doing that, I became fascinated by what you could do with English to make it work in relation to this. So from there, I just sort of slid into it, really. <laughs> Because reading in another language is one thing, but then actually putting something down on the page in English is another, isn't it? You can you can quite happily read in a you know a number of languages, but if you're then called upon to render it into English, that sort of tests you at a different level. Yes, and it actually draws you so into such tension with the language that you're reading in that um, it's not something that I I think people should be encouraged to undertake until they really are very comfortable with. The, that other language um, because you know the two languages really work against each other more than they work with each other and you've got to be like a bridge you've got to have stability equally at both ends otherwise it pulls away from one language or another so um, holding that that tension I suppose is one of the essences of translation for me Have you have you in your career taught people to translate from Japanese? Um, I've attempted to. <laughs> Whether I've succeeded is a moot point. <laughs> um, there are certain things that you can teach them in the way of, you know, basic skills, 
what to avoid, what to do when you come across certain key things in a language and so on. But, I mean, essentially so much of translation is is what you do in your own language, well, in the language you're working into, which is really about writing, I think. And, you yeah. you know, it's very hard to teach people who can't, who don't intuitively write well, to write well. So I did feel like a failure when I was trying to teach translation. I think you're absolutely right. And some people, you know, you you, you were talking earlier about the sort of subtle overtones and allusions in the, in the Japanese texts. And a translator has also to be sensitive to those allusions and overtones in their own language, I think, and, and that's not always the case. Yes, hugely, hugely, yes, yes. I mean, you've got to have read so widely and to have so much at your command that um, because you've got to be the, uh, uh, sort of a ventriloquist as well as writing in your own voice, so you do have to have all those things at your fingertips in a way and be aware of just what echoes are in the words that you're using in English, as well as what echoes you're attempting to bring in from the other language. Now, I guess you could have made a career translating contemporary and 20th century Japanese literature into English and teaching and and so on. But you you were clearly drawn to some of the classics of Japanese literature, and I presume they bring a whole additional set of challenges. Yes, they certainly do. what was it drew what was it drew you to that to those um to those peaks I can put it like that way uh well, in a sense, I suppose I was finding modern Japanese literature a little frustrating It's very hard to try and bring my head back to where I was when I started making that transition, but of course, I had read a number of classics in English. And the longer I was in Japan, the more relevant they began to feel to me as a way of understanding something at a fairly deep level in Japan, which I was trying to do in my own life. And it felt right to start going back and feeling my way into the old language, into the old literature, as a way of bringing that up into consciousness, as it were. Um... And modern Japanese literature has been very, well, still is very um, influenced by Western literature and conceives of itself in terms of Western literature. And the foreignness of the classical literature was one of the things that intrigued me. It, it was conceived of and and written with absolutely no reference to Western literature at all. So everything all the way through from its assumptions to its language to its use of imagery to its literary techniques was so entirely foreign that um, it just began to intrigue me more and more. And, of course, by being intrigued, I then began to try and translate it. Yes, was that a sort of gradual realisation that you wanted to embrace that challenge, wanted to try and bring some of those texts over into English? Yes, I, I suppose by the time I was really... Because I... Essentially, I think I taught myself classical Japanese. I didn't study it formally at university. So by the time I was coming to grips with it, I was already translating. And it just was a natural extension of my reading habits by then to translate what I was interested in reading in Japanese, I suppose. And then, of course, the the challenges that were involved in trying to get the classical 
sensibility into English were a whole new level of problem for me and challenge and, well, fascination, really. And I, I know that comparisons can sometimes be a little bit facile, but, I mean, is it like someone who knows modern Italian trying to learn Latin or someone who knows modern English going back to Anglo-Saxon? Or, I mean, what, what degree of, of difference and challenge is, is inherent in just reading texts which were written more than a thousand years ago, for example? I think, well, you could say that it was a bit like trying to go back into Anglo-Saxon because it is, of course, it is the language out of which modern Japanese directly evolved. So there is a lot of continuity there as far as, well, fundamental grammatical structures and assumptions about how sentences work and, um, and of course, vocabulary to some extent. But it is also very, very different. And, of course, it's different down through the, the um, centuries as well. So to learn the, the classical grammar is one thing, but then, of course, you can branch in all directions from there and just get more and more confused as like as not <laughs> or intrigued, depending on how you're feeling. Yes, and I'm guessing, you, I'm guessing that you were mainly intrigued, that, 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 that such things as, as those fascinate you and, and draw you on. Yes, yes, they absolutely do. Yeah, yes. And of course, I mean, you know, if you just give yourself the time to sink into it, you do begin to feel it along your own nerves, as it were, rather than just have to sort of battle through dictionaries and sort out verb tenses and all those rather tiresome things about early language. So maybe time away from the, the desk is as important, the sort of absorbing and... I mean, do you memorise some of the verse? Does it get into your bloodstream to that extent that, you know, if you're out walking or or doing something completely different, that that, that, that language is sort of pulsing through your, your mind? Well, yes. When I'm translating a classic, I suppose, and I'm spending hours a day doing it, it's certainly something that I walk off with still humming in my mind. And as for the poetry, it's, they're so brief, you know. I mean, it's usually pre-haiku poetry. It's the tanka, the earlier poetry that I work with. But um, even so, they are so brief that it, it barely takes any effort to memorize it, them at all. Yes. And if you're working on them to the point where you're trying to translate them well, you just, your mind has, you know, sunk deep inside what those words are. So... Yes, I suppose my head's a bit cluttered with them, really, at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say something about your your working practice? You know, in contrast to someone who might be translating a, a, a big European novel, as you say, Atanka is a very short, elusive, economical piece of verse um, given to wordplay and all those sort of harmonics we we mentioned. So how, what what do you what do you actually do when you're working on one of those? Is there a lot of scribbling on paper and or walking around or how how do you work on it? Um, some walking around certainly happens sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I suppose. What do I do? Well, sometimes they because they're brief. Sometimes you can just hit it. It's like you know, catching something. You just yes. You suddenly put your hand up, and there it is in your hand, and you can see how how it would fall out, as it were, onto the page. But the more the more interesting the tanka is, the less that happens, really. So I see. It's well. How how do you do it, really? How do you do it? Um, you um. One of the troubles with it is that 
the the structure of Japanese is really so hugely different from English. And yet, in poetry, of course, what comes before something else is very important. Well, everything is very important in poetry, but you know what what you are introduced to first, and how that then develops in this poem is an important aspect of it. So, one of the great frustrations is that the English language just can't often follow that particular mode of development because it works grammatically in such different ways. The Japanese verb comes at the end and so on. And, you know, we we like to have our nice fat verbs at the beginning and know where we are. Yes. And all sorts of other aspects as well. So juggling things so that you can get some kind of sense of how it evolves in these brief lines is really just letting words sort of drift around in your mind. And it's it's a bit like peripheral vision, I think. I don't know. You probably mm. find this too, that if you focus too closely on things, it yes. just becomes a struggle. But if you sort of look away, somewhere out of the corner of your eye, you begin to see another way of doing it. It's sort of lateral thinking or something. Something begins to suggest itself, which isn't to do with your conscious struggling to achieve some particular goal in relation to the poem. Absolutely, so when it works, yes. it, it comes like that. And when it doesn't, then you just go for a walk and <laughs> hope that <laughs> solves it, which it sometimes does. Yes. And the ones which don't sort of come almost ready-made, which take more work, are you sort of conscious of always, if I can put it this way, of weighing up sacrifices, of of knowing that you can't capture everything that's there in the Japanese, therefore you're you're sort of thinking, well, I can capture this by doing that, but then perhaps we, we lose a little bit of this, or is that is that maybe too, uh, too sort of met- metricated a way of thinking about it? <laughs> uh, well, yes, sometimes that does happen. But really, I suppose, past a certain point, the thing that really is crucial for me in deciding what to do with a poem is the way the English sounds. At some point, I just have to leave the Japanese poem behind and work with what's there in terms of my own language. And the thing I really don't want to sacrifice is what my own language is doing in order to get something that is there in the Japanese. If it's not going to work in the English, then I'm prepared to throw it out the window, which is actually, I mean, that's that's a rather irresponsible way of approaching it. But I really do want it to work in English. That's the ultimate thing for me. Well, I very much felt that Travels with a Writing Brush did work in English. There are lots of passages I've underlined and put marks in the margin by, and I know I'll, I'll want to return to. And I wanted to ask you, Meredith, I mean, r- really the book shows the Japanese literature coming into being, doesn't it? So why why was travel the way that you wanted to approach that? Why was why was that out of I guess there are many different ways you could have approached this body of literature and carved it up differently. So why travel? Uh, well, the 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 travel was the very first thing that led me into it, and it was only by working out what I was going to do with travel that I realised that I was ending up writing a book which traced. The evolution of Japanese literature. Right, right. <laughs> oh, that was really quite late in the piece because I 
began by, well, there's, there are two threads to the story, one of which goes back right to 30 years ago or so when I first was beginning to travel myself in Japan and trying to work out how literature and place and travel related for me. And that led me really back to Basho, whose great work, you know, The Narrow Road, is um, yes. just one of the key texts for that kind of literature. And from Basho, I began to sort of bounce backwards because what I realized quite early on was that he was not in any way writing in a vacuum, even though he was writing in a very new style, that he, he felt an immense inheritance all around him which I had not been aware of and I needed to know what that inheritance was and that was what sent me right back I think. Right and you do I mean you do go right back to the the dawn of Japanese literature which is about a millennium before the time of Basho and you've you start the collection with a a remarkable collection of of poetry Manyoshu which which dates from the 8th century and already the theme of travel is is clearly um, delineated. Yes, it was one of one of the interesting things for me was to read the Manyoshu, which is an immensely long book. So I haven't by any means finished. I've probably got two thirds <laughs> of the way through it. But, um, <laughs> but the more I read, the more I realised that you know that travel was absolutely everywhere. It really was one of the fundamental themes of the poetry there, and wove in and out as metaphor and image of other poems which weren't about travel too. So so there was that right there at the beginning. And then, of course, Basho, you know, a thousand or so years later, just has carried that right through with such a sense of continuity in all sorts of ways, including the structure of the poetry and the imagery and all sorts of things. So that was intriguing. And I just felt that there was this huge flow between the two of them which I only knew scraps of and it was really wanting to know just what that continuity was, how it had evolved from the beginning up to Basho that set me on the path of the book I suppose. And that that journey, if I can <laughs> borrow the metaphor, you know, <laughs> takes you past some of the the high points of, of that millennium of Japanese literature, doesn't it? Yes, yes it does, it does well it, it sort of, it's it goes around some of the really high points, like the tale of Genji and so on, which are very court-centered. Uh, I mean, one of the interesting things about focusing on travel is that it isn't by any means the mainstream of literature. And yet, most of what happened in literature weaves in and out of the story of the evolution of travel writing. So, in a sense, it's, uh, it's kind of traveling the side streams, but going along the same flow which was rather fun because, of course, you know, the main flow is the flow that everybody knows, but the side streams people aren't at all so aware of. And what sort of preconceptions about what travel writing is do readers need to set aside when they approach your book? Well, that was an interesting question for me because I really wasn't thinking about that when I was doing the translations, but when I began to talk to people about what I was doing, I was very surprised by the questions that they asked or the assumptions that they made. And that made me realize really just how very different this literature is. And one of the main things is that I think we think of travel writing really as 
writing about adventure, the traveller going off and witnessing new things, um, discovering things about themselves and other people and other places. And newness is probably the essence of what we think of in travel writing. Whereas this travel writing is hugely about its own tradition, really. And to go back and touch the things that earlier travellers had touched was really, as it were, the touchstone of so much of this writing. So tradition being something that we have very little to do with now and we rather consider in negative terms, it just seemed kind of an, an antithesis to everything that people would be bringing to the idea of travel writing. So I really... When I was writing the introduction, I thought I really must begin by making that clear because people will have so many misconceptions about what it is that it's bound to disappoint. So I needed to clarify that it wasn't about adventure and it wasn't about going to new places because people went back and back and back to the same places. And what it was about was about the kind of accretions that occur there and who one is as a traveller in going back to places that other people had been to. And all of that is so foreign to Westerners that um, I, I'm still not quite sure just how much of a challenge it will be for readers to come to terms with. <sighs> I suppose how little, how little of what they expect is in the book, that being the main thing. But, you know, so many new rewards. I mean, one of the words that I sort of wrote down in my notes was surprises. It, was, it, seems, it seems to be full of surprises. And I think that's the positive side of what, if, if you've sort of characterised it slightly negatively, I think the positive side is being so often surprised by the, by the range of voices and the way the tradition can be picked up and, and used in a different way. You know, some slight variation or some slight echo can, can sort of bring recognition. I thought one of, one of the characteristics that I took from a lot of the writing in the book is that sense of dislocation, that that was a very strong sense of when you're traveling, you're not in the right place, you're not at home, you're not with your beloved, you're not at court, you're not in the in the middle of things. It's it's akin, and in some cases, almost literally, um, akin to a sense of exile. Yes, yes, it is. And that was really one of the things that people savored, because to write good literature is to write something that contains deep feeling. And being excited by new things is not a deep feeling. <laughs> Whereas longing for home, feeling you know lonely on your solitary bed somewhere deep in the mountains and so on, that, that's a very evocative sort of a, a situation to be in. And those are the things that the, the travellers really focused on. So it is, it's an extraordinary thing how often people came back and back. And of course, it was a kind of motif, a literary motif that, even if they were actually having rather a nice time, they were still required in some way to be mournful because if you travel, then that's what you are. You feel deeply the poignancy of separation and loss and all those things that make for really good literature. Yeah, that word poignancy is important, isn't it? I, I noted down at one point in the book, you, you talk about the solitary traveller moving through poetically charged landscape and responding to its poignant resonances. That That is a very common phenomenon, isn't it? Yes, indeed. That was one of the essences of travel writing for, I think, centuries in a way. I suppose it was sort of ringing the changes on that theme, a lot of that writing. The importance of verse, I mean, that's another thing which will surprise people who are used to reading Western 
travel accounts. It's often it seemed to me it was it was like almost like a, a songwriter who who introduced a, a song and there would be a little bit of prose narrative and then they'd perform the song and the poems and the prose seemed to be in a sort of similar kind of um, relationship. The prose setting up the poem, but the poem being the this condensation of of feeling and imagery. Yes, that's that's precisely how almost all of it is, including um, what Bashaw wrote. In fact, I mean, as you say, it's it's just so so different from our general approach to the way one writes about travel and and a prose style. But it is very, I mean, it, it, I suppose those poems were songs in a way. I mean, they evolved from song, as indeed our own poetry did, but um, it is very like, as you say, somebody giving a little prose introduction before they introduce the song, the poem. And in fact, that was how it evolved. And that was one of the fascinations for me, was to discover just how strongly that carried through from the very beginning because the earliest poems often had little prose introductions that set the scene for the poem. And those little introductions began to be expanded over time and linked together into continuous narratives, really through travel writing as much as anything. So that balance of of prose and poetry that you get in all this writing is really so fundamental to it and so different from the way we conceive of writing about travel. And another of the positive surprises is that women travellers do feature, you know, quite prominently, certainly compared, if you were comparing accounts of travels in the same period in Western literature, I think you'd probably be hard-pressed to come up with so many and, you know, such fine examples of writing. Oh, well, that's interesting. I'm glad you say that because I was, I mean, I did want to include as many women as I could, but um, they are thin on the ground. But there are some very, very good women, as you say. And I'm glad you felt that, that you know, they were well represented there, even though they're much less represented than the men, of course. They're also very interesting writers, I found. I mean, it took a great deal of it took a great deal of courage, really, to, to go on the road back in those days as a woman, well, as a man, too, but um, to the women who wrote those travel accounts, they had a certain personality that is that was quite fascinating for me, actually, and quite interesting to try and catch in English as I was writing it. And, of course, the, the writing of verse, the writing of travel accounts was the concern of, a, of an educated elite, a, a relatively small part of Japanese society. And we can imagine other people on the roads, other people travelling for other reasons who don't have a voice. And so it's really interesting when you get a glimpse of them, you know, perhaps in the margins. And I was really interested in the asobi, these um, these women entertainers. You, you say they, they're a haunting presence in the margins of many travellers' tales. Can you say a little bit about them? Because I imagine not many people will have will have heard much about them before. Yes, well, they were another thing that fascinated me as I was working through the texts in the book, is because they come in right at the beginning. There are, in the Manyoshi, that first collection of poetry, there are poems that, although they are non, they're anonymous, they are clearly by women who were... Well, it's very hard to pin down exactly who they were because they were illiterate and there were so many of them and they, of course, evolved through history. So to give a single definition is is almost impossible, but they were, in many cases, prostitutes, essentially, but entertainers as well. 
usually their their basic profession was as entertainer, usually or often traveling entertainer. And um, that that combination of entertaining and you know sleeping with your client, I suppose, has carried right through. Well, these these women were actually still on the road in the early twentieth century, mm. and you know they finally settled down into the geisha quarters. But um, but the geisha are the the modern inheritors, essentially, of these women who really I think were phenomenally skilled often in their entertaining. And they could be found all over Japan, on the roads, in the little ports, just, well, wherever there would be male customers. But women, too, I think, were intrigued by the asobi. And I mm. found them immensely intriguing, I must say. I wish that they'd had more voice. Yes, because the, the, the little glimpse you get of them in um, the collection Dust Dancing on the Rafters is is really intriguing, isn't it? Yes, Wonderful, strong voices they have. Wonderful kind of rough-edged, knowing kinds of songs those are. They're marvellous things. It's fascinating to see Japanese literature at a stage before certain of the tropes that we're familiar with, like, you know, like Cherry Blossom. You say Cherry Blossom hasn't hasn't really come into its own yet as a sort of poetic trope. And it's it's really fascinating to see things coming into being that perhaps we think of as as fixed. Yes, I think. Well, inevitably, I suppose we inherit a given version of what classical Japanese culture was, which yes. really didn't evolve until oh, the sixteenth, seventeenth centuries. Um, and there, there were the beginnings, of course, earlier on in some of it. But you know, tea ceremony and oh, you know, flower arranging and <laughs> all the things that are kind of the givens of Japanese culture now, or classical culture. And that that was another of the interesting things was to see that slowly coming, forming, I suppose, through earlier centuries, through references made by travellers to experiences that, that they had. So, um, yes, this the whole concept of the evolution of culture itself, which, of course, I could barely sketch when I was writing the little yes. introductory pieces to the works that I've got in there, it was fascinating. I could watch the, the language evolve. I could watch the culture evolve, the little sort of seeds of what would then become very important centuries later already there. You could watch how the tanka evolved slowly through linked verse and turned into haiku and just how liberating that was. It was that, that process, I think, that I loved almost more than anything in the work of this book. Without being too sort of simplistic about it, seeing the way in which Japanese writers see the journey as a metaphor of the larger journey of life and, and what what is what they pick out, what they prize, what, what they see as beautiful, how they regard time and impermanence and flux. It's all it's all sort of coming into shape, isn't it? Mm, yes, it certainly is. And of course when Buddhism began to be important in people's lives, rather than simply what happened in temples and so on the whole concept of the journey became immensely powerful as a metaphor. And people in their traveling, I think, felt as though they were almost embodying this metaphor. So the whole experience of travel became such a powerful thing. As as you say, you know, in, in embodied um, the ephemerality of things, the passing nature of things, the um, 
you know, the the need to not be attached, to keep moving on, to to witness and pass on, to to feel deeply but not to linger over things. All of that was was there very strongly. Some people may read the book from from start to finish, but if someone if someone wanted to dip in and perhaps tune into an arresting voice and get a sense of some of the the richness and the surprises of this book where 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 might they dip a toe in well i think one of the places that i would suggest is the sarashina diary which is the young girl's diary of her experience traveling down from a remote province to kyoto to the capital which is just such a beautifully vivid voice and also contains a lot of what the literature is in terms of how the the poetry works with the imagery and how travel was experienced and the kind of the vividness of her voice I think is delicious. The other person who actually was somebody who I discovered really in the process of doing this and I really fell for was quite late in the process the wonderful linked verse poet Sogi who was one of the first commoners to write in this mode and was very conscious of being a commoner in a mode that was really an aristocratic mode essentially until then uh, and was a wonderful poet, was a a marvellous writer um, and his travel journals I think are, are really fascinating things and that little run of two of his travel journals culminates in another little journal written by his disciple when he, as an old man, Sogi as an old man, was making his final journey with his disciple and a few other disciples and died on the journey. And it's in the form of a letter telling the story of that final journey and his death and how he felt about traveling and the experience of being a link verse writer with everything that that involved as far as the the incredible three-day sessions of nothing but linked verse writing and so on, right up to the moment he died virtually, which I found incredibly moving to read. And I really hope that people can persevere if they're reading from the very beginning to the point where they find Sogi, because he's a real treasure, I think. He was a marvellous profession to me. Yes. And the last thing I wanted to ask you, Meredith, is um, are you already embarked on a new translating project? Uh, well, I, one of the people who intrigued me when I was doing this book was a woman whose name we don't really know, but Lady Nijo, oh, who yes. had been a concubine of the emperor or the retired emperor and <laughs> had led rather too wild a life in court and been kicked out in her 20s <laughs> and took to the road as a nun and was just such a strong personality and such a wonderful writer. And what I translated for the book was just the travel sections of her long diary journal. But I thought, it has been translated before, but of course, you know, one always thinks one can do better or (laughs) do it differently or whatever. So I would love to go back and launch into that. And I have, in fact, launched into it. And I don't know whether it will be published or, you know, it's very hard to know how that, whether these things will find a publisher. But it's just, she, she so intrigued me that I thought I'd like to spend some time with her and really do her justice. So that's what I'm trying to do at the moment. I was talking to Meredith McKinney 
about her anthology Travels with a Writing Brush, which is published in paperback by Penguin Classics. P.D. Smith, writing in The Guardian, said, In this remarkable work of translation and scholarship, filled with wonderful vignettes of Japanese life and sensibility, McKinney introduces readers to the nation's rich and unique literary tradition. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 50 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.